What's shaking, cats and kittens? I'm Rob Lee from Getting to the Truth in This Art. And this podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Bazaar. Bazaar is a gift shop for those seeking the strange and unusual. Got morbid curiosity? Got an interest in natural history? Bazaar's got you covered. Bazaar specializes in antique medical equipment, jewelry, prints, funerary antiques, and many other morbid gifts. The inventory is ever-changing. I'm wearing a great death's head moth pin, and I'm enjoying this hand-poured candle called Overgrown Cemetery. It's great. It has the studio smelling awesome. Head on over to 3534 Chestnut Avenue in Baltimore, Sinan Hamden neighborhood, and see what they got to offer at Bazaar. Tell them Rob Lee sent you. Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today's guest, th- this episode's guest, is uh, a multi-instrumentalist, composer, and educator from Washington, D.C., an alum of Howard University's legendary jazz program. We have Elijah Jamal Balbet. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey. So... I'm 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 happy. Um, I've seen some of your stuff. I've been following you for you know for a little while now, and it's it's always a treat to um, kind of have a conversation with someone outside of just following them. You know, like you live vicariously. You kind of uh, stalk people a little bit. Like, oh, what are you doing? What are you up to? But being able to talk to you and get a little bit more of your story is um, is is great. For sure, well, I appreciate you having me. Uh, so. Real quick, um, I, I gave the thousand foot view. I literally copied it from your uh, from your website. Um, <laughs> what, what is your um, describe your background? Describe your work. Give us that that rundown or what have you, because I think it's always best to hear it from the artist's perspective. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm a Washington D.C. native, born in D.C. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, to give you a little backstory, my mom is also a D.C. native. She went to Duke Ellington School for the Arts when she was in school, but she played classical percussion and hated it. (laughs) (laughs) So she didn't stick with music. But growing up, she surrounded me uh, with tons of great music. Um, For one, she listened to all different styles, jazz, R&B, rock and roll, reggae. Um, she even worked at a jazz club at one point, Charlie's in Georgetown, and managed reggae bands when I was a kid. Um, so I was just surrounded around the music. And then um, also surrounded by like little toy instruments, um, like a xylophone, a little like a recorder, mini harmonica. And then when I had the opportunity to pick up a band instrument, I decided I wanted to play a horn. And we were trying to decide between trumpet and sax landed on sax. Got it. Um, and then I continued playing. And by the time I got to high school, I really started to fall in love with music and knew it was something that I wanted to keep doing pretty prominently in my life. Um, and I went to Albert Einstein High School in Montgomery County, which had a great jazz program. And I was able to like really just flourish and develop my skills there. And by the time I was applying to colleges, knew that I wanted to major in music. And I was working at a music store in Silver Spring, Maryland called Dale Music, which is no longer there. And the director of the jazz program at Howard University, Fred Irby III, uh, he would come in there regularly. And at one point, just kind of casually asked uh, what I played, um, what my plans were for college. And over the course of like the next year, he basically uh, ended up kind of recruiting me 
to come to Howard and I ended up being a featured soloist with the Howard University Jazz Ensemble. Um, got to record an album each year, both with the Jazz Ensemble and with their small group, the wow. Jazz Tet, and even got to travel. I went on my first tour with HUJE, Howard University Jazz Ensemble, to Tokyo. Uh, actually, not just Tokyo. Tokyo, Nagano, Yokohama, and Kurusawa, four cities in Japan. Um, so yeah, going to, to Howard was a, was a really great experience. And I was also blocks away from the historic uh, jazz corridor in Washington, D.C., U Street. Um, I was blocks away from Bohe Bohemian Caverns. Um, so just surrounded by the great musicians and the great uh, music scene that exists, you know, in close proximity to where I was also going to college. That's great. I, I I really like that that area, what have you. Um, I, I'm unable to get down to D.C., especially now, as much as I would like to. But that is definitely an area that um, definitely around Howard and that, that kind of U Street corridor, that definitely is an area that it, it just like I have my DC bias because I'm, I'm, I'm a Baltimore person. And, you know, it's <laughs> one of those things where DC and Baltimore, they have to always be at ends, you know, at odds rather. But um, I definitely like those that that area in DC. It's 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 beautiful. It's filled with culture, cool people there. I've always had a good time in the times I've gone down there. Um, so so speak on that that experience in in um in in, in going to Japan and um in kind of being in, in the jazz scene there because um I've I've listened to a little uh, Japanese like jazz and um I'm a novice but uh I've listened to a little bit there how was that experience for you Yeah well since then I've been fortunate to travel to many other places but J going to Japan was what really opened my eyes to how much more appreciated jazz music is in other parts of the world. And I'd always heard this, you know, especially Japan, that, that jazz was big there. But I remember this one moment we had just finished, actually one of the bigger shows we did out there. It was, it was the first time that I looked into the audience and there was just a sea of people. There had to be like a thousand people in the audience or something. And maybe a few thousand, I don't know. And uh, after the concert, uh, we all got into our tour bus, which was kind of like in the back area of the stage. And uh, we're all loaded up into the bus and we just kind of hear the, this like faint screaming coming from the distance and it's, it gets louder and louder and louder. It was a bunch of um, like high school and maybe college age uh, people who had just been listening to us who had kind of like mobbed the tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> like we were the, you know, like we were Jackson five or the Beatles or something. Like it was, it was crazy. And, That's um, and, you know, since then I've been fortunate to, to travel quite a bit to a lot of different places and it's kind of the same thing. You know, you, you go to a lot of places around the world and the music is, is so much more highly regarded and appreciated. Yeah. Like as I've um, like when I was younger, uh, I went to Morgan and, you know, WAA and all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of viewed it as this is my dad's music and that's all he would have on. And as I've matured and become more refined, I'll say uh, I realized that, no, this is actually really good music and being able to like in, in a really macro sense. Right. This is really good music. And don't just put it in in this bucket and because this is really broad and it's really like 
like like black it's really inclusive it is really like great music mm-hmm. and i've like in this last like two years i've been growing out my uh my vinyl and been been playing just records what have you and just you know i want a um a few few weeks back i interviewed um uh, what is his name? Ian Raskin from um, the Baltimore Jazz Alliance. He's the president there. And mm-hmm. we just had a conversation about Charles Vegas. And uh, I did a weekend like Odyssey and like just, I was already a Charles Mingus like fan or heavy, but then just did a deeper dive that weekend and watched this biopic and all of this different stuff with that, that, that film about him in the sixties. And it was just like, yeah, this is great. I'm dipped into it. I'm, you know, just got vinyl in here and I'm living that lifestyle. And it felt really good to kind of, you know, right that wrong of thinking this is only for my dad, that there are other things out there for me. And this was, this is good. Um, nice, nice. That's funny. I actually just did an interview uh, less than a week ago at this really awesome vinyl shop in DC called HR Records. Okay. And uh, just want to plug them because they're, they're awesome. They have one of the best vinyl jazz collections in the city. And, uh, and they have like a lot of, not, not just jazz, they have a lot of like historic DC music too which i love um like the blackbirds and chuck brown and um and yeah they're just a really great shop <laughs> you're, you're giving me a place to now go down I, I was trying to stay out of dc elijah now i have the reason to go down there again. exactly thank you i appreciate it uh so yeah, i think you touched on it a little bit um but let's speak about your speak about your um your artistic expression in, in finding that and i i understand the education piece of it or you you spoke on the education piece of it but in what other ways maybe did you kind of find that artistic inspiration yeah well um i mean you know going going to school for jazz was helpful but i really do feel like the real growth happened on the bandstand, you know, uh, taking what I was learning and really applying it. And uh, so a lot of the inspiration actually came from some of the the local greats who were like really just kicking my butt every week at these <laughs> jam sessions. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, some of those cats, uh, some of them aren't in town anymore. Like one guy was Quaman Fowler, who's a great tenor player. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Green plays alto sax, he's in Baltimore. Um, uh, Ted Baker, Lyle Link, uh, and I studied with Paul Carr, but he's also, you know, a great player and plays on the scene quite often. Um, and then as far as like some of the greats that I listened to when I was in my developmental stages, mm-hmm. um, Joe Henderson was like one of my favorite tenor players early on. Um, Dexter Gordon, Sonny Rollins, Charlie Parker, John yeah. Coltrane, uh, Cedar Walton, he's a piano player, but I really love him as a composer and as an improviser. Uh, Slide Hampton, he's a trombone player, but I love his improvising. Kenny Dorham, trumpet player. So, you know, some of my influences aren't necessarily just sax players either. Gotcha. I think it's it's, it's always kind of cool. Like when you find what you're doing from a creative standpoint, you may see people who aren't doing that exactly that that same thing or even in that same space that you're in but you're like i can get something from it whether it be their approach you can always learn something so it's great to make that distinction that it's not only sax players that you're you're getting inspiration from yeah for sure for sure so in terms of like themes are are there any themes that you you intentionally put within your work whether it be composing whether it be playing or whether it be the the people that you um like uh, play with 
Um, and if so, what would some of those themes be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, typically my composing is uh, it's triggered by coming from some, somewhere of an, a somewhat of an emotional place. So, um, you know, sometimes it's a specific in a specific event or sometimes it's just a way I'm feeling on a particular day. Um, but in the last five years or so, I started composing work that was uh, reflective of how I was feeling about, you know, society and mm -hmm. politics and the world. <laughs> um, and that uh, ended up evolving into this whole body of work with um, speech samples by uh, politicians, uh, including actually Baltimore's own, the late, great Elijah Cummings. Um, he was a big inspiration to me as far as like uh, including um, the the voices of a politician in in my music because in a way when he spoke he he was very musical he had kind of like different pitches and and breaks and things like that um, and then since then it's just it's grown into this really great uh, body of work that tells a story of basically what you know the world and particularly us here in america went through over the last five years and uh you know when you when you start to incorporate political messaging in your music there's always that fear as an artist like oh am i going to be too di divisive or am i going to like you know uh discourage people from listening to me but when you look at you know look at history Almost all of the great artists throughout history spoke to the times they were living through. Um, I mean, DC's own Marvin Gaye, Char Char you mentioned Charlie Mingus, um, Abby Lincoln and Max Roach, you know, the list goes on of, of people who spoke to their times. So on some level, I think it's our duty to do so. And so that body of work is called the Karma Suite, which right now is available on like, uh, you know, streaming platforms and Bandcamp but I'm working on actually uh, putting it out as a full project on vinyl. So I'll have to keep you posted. Yeah, I just, I just typed it in. <laughs> Cause uh, that, the way you described it, you definitely, uh, you sold a ticket. I was like, oh, this is already in my uh, most recent searches anyway. I was like, all right. All right. So that's, that's great. And I think, um, I think that's the thing where it, it is that, that risk of, is this going to be too much of this? Is this going to be too much of that? But it's like, is what I'm putting out there, whether it be whatever your artistic expression is, and for for you, music, your performance, or your your composing, your composition. For me, being a jerk on a microphone, just talking. <laughs> um, it's what you're feeling in that moment, and at the root of it, is it true? You know, or is this true of where you're at at this particular moment? That that's like that 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 first tier or what have you. And I think sometimes we really get apprehensive of doing that, which you you you, you sometimes it lacks that feeling. You know, when when you do something, it's like oh, I got to be safe. It it lacks that emotion. It lacks that feeling, which a lot of times might be the reason why you're even doing that artistic expression. Exactly. Exactly. So. I, I so <laughs> I watched I've been doing this thing of watching um, movies from the 90s and uh, I 
I get a lot of flack because it's something I should have seen because I'm like 36 now. And it's like, why haven't you seen this? Why haven't you seen more better blues and so on? <laughs> so I, I watched more better blues and I, and I saw the, the process of Denzel Washington's character, like what his day looked like and the practicing and the performance and all of that stuff. So it got me really interested in, in conjunction with reading this book about what an artist does day to day. What does your typical day look like? Let's, Let's take COVID out. I know that's been a reality for the last year, but what does your day generally look like? Well, I think uh, the busier I've gotten over the years, the struggle is always balancing what I call like office work and, <laughs> and like creative work. Um, Cause sometimes I'll try to get, you know, a certain amount of office work done, meaning like, you know, sometimes it's just like hitting people up for gigs or, uh, emailing clients or returning a contract or invoice or sending a W9, like, you know, all the things. Yeah. Um, and then I'll get too, you know, caught up in that and like get a headache <laughs> just from like being on a computer too much. Um, and then, you know, just have to like kind of back away take a break. And then I get to the music or sometimes unfortunately don't get to the music. So um, my recent mantra has been no days off when it comes to uh, practicing and, or doing something musical, um, whether it's composing, creating, um, just making sure that I'm like working that muscle every day. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, usually if I can, if I wake up early enough, I try to get that office stuff done earlier in the day, um, practice in the afternoon. And then if I have a gig, which is a lot less often during COVID, but I have been doing a decent amount of like pop-up um, park performances and backyard concerts. Uh, when the weather permits. So, um, so if I have a gig, then that's just another opportunity to play during the day. I dig it. I think always like you, you, you hit on, um, definitely stretching that muscle, um, and making sure that you're, you're working at it. Uh, I, you know, like I said, my, my closest expression is being doing this podcast thing. And right now I do three different podcasts and I've been putting so much time to this particular podcast that, this is the one that I know like the back of my hand, whereas the other ones I haven't really been working that, that muscle because they're improv. And, you know, mm -hmm. like this, I kind of have like a set, you know, of questions and I research and all of that stuff. But one of the podcasts specifically is very improv. And it's like, okay, I got to be sharp and mm -hmm. I haven't done it in a while. So it's like, ah, I should really work on. Yeah. Here's my, my jokes. Here's my, my, my witty repartee or what have you. And I haven't really been doing that. And I'm kind of a little out of practice when it comes to it. So Maybe I need to take that approach. You know, maybe in my medium, taking the approach that, that, you know, always no days off, no days off of saying goofy things for a comedy podcast. That's the other podcast I do. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's the same for me too. Like uh, even when I'm talking to the audience at a performance and especially during virtual performances, oh my yeah. God, it's so like awkward and you, you don't know like how the, the audience is reacting um, you know, you have to even say different things. You can't be like, how are you guys feeling? Then <laughs> just crickets, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different muscles that you just have to keep working at for sure. Yeah. That's, that's been a thing. Like I've tried to do the streaming thing and, you know, seeing people perform and it's like a lot of times, like I, it's like, I just got into it. Like I was saying earlier, when it came to my vinyl stuff and with uh, some of the people I've interviewed for this podcast, this is season 
you know, three uh, for for this podcast. And I've met some really cool, cool people through through doing it and hearing their story and kind of bonding with them and connecting with them and getting that invite. And it's like, I don't know what that's going to be. I would love to see you perform live. And, you know, it's just like, I can't wait, but also I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be. So it's like getting that middle ground and, and, and how that looks, how that might be a little different. Cause um, I know that I would imagine that the having that audience interaction might be a little different. Like I listen to like old, old records, like, you know, Charlie Bengus or what have you. And I just remember it was one edit of the, the what is it, Fables of Fathers, and he just does this whole intro. He's like, don't make any noise, and he just, he just goes through it. And you wouldn't have that if it was done virtually. You wouldn't have any of that interaction that makes that particular recording so much unique, so so unique, because I'm looking for that part when he's telling people, put your glasses down, don't make any transactions, we're about to get into this. Yeah, yeah, there's a really great record um, live from Bohemian Caverns, actually, in Washington, D.C., the the pianist, he's a living legend, uh, Ramsey Lewis. Mm-hmm. And the the vibe and the energy on that record is just, is just amazing. You just, you feel the audience, you know, as you're listening. It's fantastic. Uh, so as a multi-instrumentalist, uh, composer, educator, you're wearing multiple hats. You've, you've uh, played alongside multiple musicians, uh, Layla, Layla Hathaway, uh, Eric Benet, Dr. John, and of course, uh, Chuck Brown. Speak mm-hmm. of some of those skills needed to spearhead a project, but also be in a supporting role within a project. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, you mentioned Chuck. Chuck Brown was like basically what spiraled me into playing with any other major artist. Um, at that point I was in college at Howard and freelancing a bit around town. So I was playing some different styles of music. I had never played go-go yet though. (laughs) And I grew up around the music because, you know, I was close to, I was in DC all the time, close to, close to the city. I would ride the, uh, the 70 bus down Georgia Avenue and hear people blasting go-go out out there, out their cars and out, out, uh, outside of the T-Mobile shop at 7th in Florida. And so I was familiar with it. My mom loved the music, but I just got thrown into the fire by uh, getting a call one day to uh, fill in for the sax player that was playing with Chuck Brown, who couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. And it was a perfect scenario because the first gig I played with Chuck was at Blues Alley. Um, which sadly is a club that right now is, is uh, in danger, you know, of, of having to move because of COVID. But Blues Alley is obviously a historic venue in, in D.C. And it was a place that I had played at a, a handful of times already. Um, so I felt pretty comfortable there. And uh, I did one rehearsal with Chuck. And at, at the rehearsal, he just welcomed me warmly and made me feel, you know, really comfortable playing. And I'll never forget at that, at that first gig at Blues Alley, um, there's this one sax solo. It's after Moody's Mood for Love and Woody Woodpecker. Uh, there's a sax solo that happens. And I, I was taking that solo and I kind of like looked to my left and I could see Chuck just looking over and smiling while I was soloing. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was so nervous, but it was also just like a, you know, affirmation that, that I was doing a good job. So that was really exciting. And I got that gig from a connection basically with his 
other horn players, I was playing in the Bohemian Caverns Jazz Orchestra every Monday night at Bohemian Caverns. And uh, his trombone player, a great trombone player who's, who's one of the original P-Funk All-Stars, his name is Greg Boyer, uh-huh. and a trumpet player by the name of Brad Clements. Um, they recommended me for the, the Chuck gig, and we ended up uh, going on to play with a bunch of different artists. Uh, we were the house band, or the house horns one year on the Capitol Jazz Cruise. Um, like you mentioned, we got to back Layla Hathaway a couple times. Um, Eric Benet, we did some touring with him. And so, yeah, the connection with those two horn players and with Chuck Brown, again, is what kind of spiraled me into being able to play with a lot of these other legendary people. That's great. Connections are important. <laughs> Everything. Uh, so now though we, you know, we're winding down. I got a couple more questions. Um, and then I'll give you that opportunity to shamelessly. And I mean, just, just make a fool of yourself and plugging whatever you want to plug. Um, but what, if you could play with anyone, Alive or, or otherwise, uh, who would that person be, and what would that song be that you'd you'd play? Ooh, I got a good answer for you because we sadly recently lost this this person, and this is somebody I, I was really hoping to get to play with one day, and that's Chick Korea. Ah, yes, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I always loved his music, but especially in the last few weeks now, uh, since he passed away. And, um, in the time that he's been gone, I've been I've been in particularly li- listening and and wearing out his records. And uh, I think before he passed away, I had a favorite song that was Tones for Jones Bones. <laughs> but since then, I've been getting really into another song of his called Captain Marvel. Um, and then I also like Windows, um, Spain, obviously. So he just wrote so many incredible compositions. He was an incredible musician and i was actually just watching one of his last interviews before he passed away and uh he just seemed like a very humble uh gracious human and so just kind of like an example of of who i hope to be (laughs) that's great that's great and it's it's also you you almost like it's not even you have a song it's like yeah we're gonna jam here's like 30 minutes of me and chick just getting at it So in, in the last question that I have for you, um, and I, this has been great. This has been informative. Um, it's been great to hear more about your, your story. Um, what piece of advice would you give aspiring artists or musicians that you, you feel that is, is very applicable, whether it be something that you received and you, like it's, you think it resonates and it needs to be shared or something that you're on the other side and you're like, you know what, this is what I would say. What, 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 what's your, um, your offering? Yeah, actually, kind of going back to Chick Corea, um, he had started an academy before, shortly before he passed away, like during COVID to, to as an opportunity to try and connect with his fans and, and connect with people who had interest in learning music. Um, and I think one thing that he said in this interview that inspired me was, don't get discouraged. No matter what level or where you are uh, in the journey, it's it's the journey that and the process that that is the reward in a way, um, and there are going to be times where either musically you know you feel like you're just not kind of hitting the stride that you want to hit, or even career wise like maybe you're not getting the gig that you wanted or 
making the money that you wanted, but um, you know, it's also kind of following that 10,000 hours of, of dedicating yourself to whatever it is you want to do. You just got to keep chipping away at the ice and eventually something breaks. That's, that's a great piece of advice there. That's, that's good. And I think that's um, definitely important to hear because um, time has, time has a different meaning these days, I think. And uh, being able to just commit to what you're doing and not really straying away from what your path is. That's, that's important. And it's good to hear that from someone that's out there. That's really, you know, doing their thing. So I'm happy to hear about all the good, good stuff that you've done and looking forward to um, following you. I just followed um, what you're doing on, um, I, I'm on Spotify, so I'm checking it out. And um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so in the last few few moments here, um, plug away. What do you got? Your social media, your website, all of that good stuff. What do you got? Yeah, well, um, obviously I'm on all social media. It's EJB Jazz. And then if you go to that lovely link in the bio of my Instagram, um, it's got what uh, is known as Linktree. Linktree <laughs> is an amazing thing because it has all my links all in one place. Every Basically every way you can support um, so if you go to my Instagram again, hit the the link in the bio, that'll take you to uh, my YouTube channel, my Spotify page, my Bandcamp. And Bandcamp, I really love to plug because Bandcamp is just about one of the best ways you can support an artist's work these days because they get most of the uh, the income from that. But also every first Friday of the month is called Bandcamp Fridays, where they actually uh, give artists 100% of the profits wow. they make that day. So if you're feeling generous and want some new music on a, on the first Friday of the month, that's always a good time to go to Bandcamp and support. That's Bandcamp, folks. Hit that Bandcamp up. Support, support, creators, artists, makers, all of that good stuff. Because uh, that sustains them, especially during uh, these times. It helps sustain, especially during these times. And if you're old school like me, I, I do a mailing list and website as well. So that's ejbjazz.com. EJB Jazz on all social media. So hope to see you. I hope to get back to performing, you know, when it's safe to, of course. And uh, and yeah, be safe and be well, everybody. So um, thank you. I'm going to I'm going to hit you with EJB. I mean, you you've said it a couple of times. I got to use it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't create that. Uh, um, I mean, it's my initials, but I feel like over time people just started calling me EJB. And uh, so that then I just kind of ran with it. <laughs> All right, I'm using it. Simplicity sakes, I, I do data in, in my day job. So acronyms are important. So the yeah. less letters possible. So um, thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so for um, EJB, Elijah Jamal Balbat, this has been getting to the truth in this art, saying that there is art, music, jazz music specifically in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. <laughs>